with your whole person, with my whole person, having to answer who he is. Um, and it makes all the difference in the world. This is the one important question in the universe. There's no other question anywhere near it. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because again, you don't answer it just with a speculation, but with your whole person. For to know who he is, to truly grasp it, is also to follow him. So when Jesus says to his disciples, who, uh, who do you say that I am? They are, uh, they are being invited, it's, it is an invitation to follow him, to, in this case, to follow him even more deeply than he had before. Now, so do all of you have the sheet handout? I tried to, uh, I decided to do this sort of sparingly because I want really, we're gonna keep your Bibles very near at hand, we're gonna be using them extensively, but I, I want to focus us on some key issues, and so it's often better if you have one page with some really important things on it, that if you give out five pages, the people can get lost in. Um, so the question, who do you say that I am, hangs over all the Gospels. Now I've used several little key markers here, the sort of arrowhead marker, that marks the question itself. The round solid dot marks a wrong answer, and of course the check mark is the correct answer. But in the Gospel, in the Gospel of Mark then, the whole book, as I said, each gospel is this way, but the whole book is confronting you with who Jesus is, but also with the purpose of drawing you in to be his disciple. Not of explaining, it may explain to you how to be his disciple, but it goes beyond that. It's structured, put together to draw the, the reader in, the hearer in, to follow Jesus and to be his disciple. We're going to see how that, how that works out as we, we go through the book. And we'll be doing this in three sections, because I have three sessions with you. We will not be doing the end part of the gospel. This right now, we're doing the question. Later on tonight, we'll be removing false answers. And then tomorrow morning, coming to the correct answer. But the question itself then. Now, the gospel, if you want to look at the um, the opening verses of Mark, actually these, I want you, us to read in full verses 1 through 13 of Mark. Um, to have somebody with a good, loud voice and some uh, contemporary, it doesn't have, I mean, you know, NIV or ASV or what, what you got? Contemporary English. No, that's too contemporary. Sorry. Or common English. Common English. No, too contemporary. No. <laughs> <laughs> it takes me fine. You're out. Let's have first. Uh, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> one, one through um, one through um, thirteen. Yeah. If you read loudly and if you would follow along. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send a messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness: Prepare the way of the Lord; make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, 
and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. All right, thank you, Brother David. Um, this, this is the prologue or the introduction to Mark, and it gives us, the readers, privileged information. That is, you begin with the people, and just a few verses later, who Jesus meets, the disciples he calls, and so forth, they don't know this stuff. They don't have this information. They have some information about Jesus. But most of the people in the Gospels don't yet have this information. We're giving privileged information about who Jesus is. By the way, I forgot, I forgot I want to say this. You know, when I say this new perspective on the Gospels, I, I want to challenge us. You know, sometimes we go so fast for application that we don't do this. For instance, I, almost every sermon I've ever heard preached on, the, on Jesus healing the paralytic, which I would be better to say Jesus forgiving the sins of the paralytic, has been, why don't you go bring somebody to Jesus? Well, that's sort of there. But it's not the main thing. The main thing is who Jesus is. And we tend to jump to some quick application. I just read a similar thing. Uh, I, I, Scripture Union, I was familiar with them from overseas. They have great daily Bible reading guides. You can find them at scriptureunion.org. And I, 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 have, I have one sent to my grandson, who's a senior in, in um, high school. I mean, I just sent it. I mean, he reads everything on his phone if he can, so I sent it to him electronically. Um, and I was reading that devotion. It was from John chapter 1 about John the Baptist bearing witness to Jesus. And again, it was about all about we need to go bear witness to Jesus. But the passage is talking about Jesus being the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the one who will give the Holy Spirit. And so we're, we're missing the God. Let's focus on Jesus first when we, when we come to the, to the gospel. So here, this is we're, we're entering into this book that's going to confront us with Jesus. And in the prologue, we are given privileged information that the people in the gospel don't have. Now, it's not necessarily that the reader here is going to understand all of this. Some of it, I mean, it's, it's there to uh, awaken our curiosity, awaken our desire, to make us hungry to know more about Jesus, to draw us into the gospel. And some of it we'll, we'll come to know better as we... Def definitively, as we meet Jesus in the gospel, it will become clearer. But let's look at this privileged information. It begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word gospel, we hear it so much and take it, take it for, um, uh, for granted. What, is, what do we mean by gospel? Well, in the world in which Mark was written, in the world in which Jesus lived, gospel, of course, we know means good news. 
but it was especially used um, when uh, to announce as 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 announcing the crowning of a new monarch or the victory of a general monarch he's coming to the throne and it would be announced this is good news because now so and so is the emperor or so and so has conquered our enemies and everything is going to be good you know in modern fiction and this kind of reflects the bible in some ways but if you saw that i don't know how many of you saw the movie the lord of the rings the movie's not nearly as good as the book at this point but um in the end, when, when Aragorn becomes king, everything is going to be right, put in its place. And that's the way, and still political parties today, you know, we're, we're naive enough to think that when the candidate we supported or the party we supported wins, everything's going to be good, <laughs> even though we've had lots of experience. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's the kind of, uh, uh, that's the way it was the good news of the crowning of the emperor and that everything is going to be put right. We've got a just and good ruler. He's destroyed our enemies. That's how it was used. Now, this gospel, though, as you'll find later on, is a gospel that announces the coming of the kingdom of God. Amen. The kingdom of God comes in Jesus. Um, it is God's power to overthrow evil and establish righteousness. It begins in the life of Jesus. All of his casting out evil spirits and healing and so forth is the power of God and forgiving sin. And transforming people is the power of God overthrowing the, 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 the forces of evil, establishing the kingdom of God. And Jesus, his great victory is on the cross over Satan. And, and, and we believe when we all get to heaven, when we go to heaven, it will be great. But as Christians, we do believe there's more than just us going to heaven. Amen. There's going to be a new heaven, a resurrection, and a new heaven and a new earth when the kingdom of God actually comes, as the Lord's Prayer prays, that your will be done on earth and is in heaven, when it will, all will be put right at the second coming of Christ. So this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, it would awaken that sense of of God is coming to put things right. Are you with me? Christ here is not a name but a title. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The one that both words, Messiah and Hebrew Christ in Greek mean the anointed one. And they, they refer to God's anointed from the Old Testament, pictured primarily by King David, the one who will establish God's rule. As King David sort of was the king, but the one who will fulfill what David anticipated will establish God's rule of the rule, the anointed one, the one for whom God's people have been waiting to fulfill the promises of God. That's who this is. This is the beginning of the gospel of this Christ, the one who should come. Of course, his name Jesus means Savior, the Son of God. Now, in the Old Testament, of course, King David and his descendants could be called sons of God. Uh, but here we have the sense even from the beginning that this means so much more here with Jesus. But here this opener is here to begin to tease our thinking, to make us want to know who this is and to meet him. Then immediately, because God's plan of redemption is one from Old Testament and New Testament, we have scripture and we have prophecy in verses 2 and 3. What is happening is in fulfillment of prophecy. And we have... Um, the first part of it comes from Micah, and then the last part from Isaiah. Um, 
And this talks about a messenger who will come before to prepare the way for someone else by making his path straight. That, and, and, but the one that he's coming to prepare for is called what? In verse 3. Prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord. The Lord. Now, this is the Lord God of Israel. Amen. The prophet is preparing the way for the Lord to come. So even right here we have a hint, more than a hint, of who Jesus is. For it's prophesied that one will come to prepare the way by calling for straight paths, which is calling people to repent. And then the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, will come. So, this is what's going on is, is a fulfillment of Scripture. It's God coming to his people. And it's being prepared by the one who will come before, the Elijah who will come before, and it's being prepared by calling people to repentance for their sin. Immediately then in verse 4, we have the scripture being fulfilled. Here is John. He appears, baptizing in the wilderness again. He appears with all the marks of an Old Testament prophet. I was teasing Adam today with his beard. He said something. I said, are you prophesying? Because he, um, but uh, he comes with, at least Adam is not wearing camel's hair. I mean, he focuses a lot of money. But, um, uh, but he might eat honey if you could get it. <laughs> I doubt the locust. Um, here he has the marks of Elijah from the Old Testament. He's dressed like him. And he comes, call it preparing by um, calling people to repentance, a baptism of repentance. Now you have to realize, when John appeared in the wilderness of the Jordan, it was like electricity. I mean, nothing so exciting, so thrilling, so full of hope had happened for hundreds of years. Here is one who comes preparing the way for the Messiah to come, like one of the prophets of old. And talking about the kingdom of God, God's rule is near. It's coming. It's here. It's in, and, and, and so people get to stream out. These are Jews under the, under the heel of Rome, waiting for God's promise, longing for God's promise, for his forgiveness, for, his, for the fulfillment, for his deliverance, they come out to John the Baptist to be baptized for the repentance of their sins. This is, this is calling them to a new way of life. To be ready for God to come, the first step is repentance, turning away from their sins. And so they say to John, so are you the one? No, no, no. I'm the preparer. I'm not the one. There's one coming. And how is he going to differ from me? I'm baptizing you with water. This is important to remember here at the beginning of Mark, because Mark doesn't say a lot about the Holy Spirit. Luke says a whole lot more. But even here in Mark, at the very beginning, the one who comes after me will be mightier, greater, so much more, so much greater than I, because he's going to be the Son of God. But the, what is going to mark that is he is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? Yes, sir. Now let's now it's, it's time now. Let's, we talked about scripture. We talked about John the Baptist, the preparer coming. So Mark can't wait any longer. In verse 9, Jesus comes. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. Yeah. Mm. How many of you have seen the Jesus film? It's a grand scene here where Jesus comes walking. It's all based on the Gospel of Luke, but where Jesus comes walking through the crowds to the Jordan to meet John the Baptist. And when he comes up, and there he goes, and 
And he takes John's baptism. Of course, we know he didn't have sins from which to repent. But by baptizing, by being baptized, he identifies with us sinners. He comes and takes on us because he is going to give his life for the sins of the world. And so he comes and, and in obedience to the Father as part of his incarnation, he takes on this baptism. And when he comes out of the water, what happens? <coughs> What's that? This sky parts. Two things. He sees the sky. It's not an earthquake. It's a sky quake. He sees the sky rent open. The boundary between heaven and earth is, 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 is open. The channel is open visibly, at least to Jesus. And two things happen. One, the, the, he, the, the, we hear the voice of the Father. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we have it and in, in the form of a dove, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Don't be mistaken. Jesus does not receive the Holy Spirit simply as you or I do. He receives the Holy Spirit as a human being, yes, but as the second person of the Blessed Trinity. For he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's right. He is the one who, pour, who, 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 who will pour the Holy Spirit out on the people of God. He is the anointed one, the Messiah, in a very special way. And so here, his identity, and, and when the Father says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, it's echoing the Old Testament. The, the revibrations and the echoes are right there for any, any Jewish person who heard it. You are my beloved son comes from Psalm 2-7. Where, where are you? Uh, you are my son comes from Psalm 2-7 where God says that to the descendant of David. Here's the heir of David. In whom I am well pleased, echoes uh, Isaiah 42 and the servant there. The, the servant of God who, in, in chapter 53 of Isaiah, will take, by whose stripes we are healed, who will take our sins upon himself through his suffering and death, is the one in whom God is well pleased. And there might even be an echo here in the word beloved of that time on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22 when Abraham took his son, his only son, his beloved son to that, to that mountain and God of course stopped him and, and put the ram in his place. Only this time God is not going to stop giving his own son. So all of, all of that is echoed. This is the promised one. These words of the father assure, assure the hearer this is the promised one who is to come and the one upon whom the Holy Spirit comes. This is the inside information we have. This is who this person is that we are called to meet, to meet and to follow. Are you with me? Amen. We're supposed to be now, even I've tried to explain a bit, the normal reader wouldn't get all of this. But this is what is here and to tantalize us to come further. Then I used to think that this in Mark, this next thing, the temptation of Jesus in verses 12 and 13 was just maybe sort of an appendage, sort of stuck in it, because the other Gospels give us some, Luke and Matthew give us so much more about the three temptations and jumping down off the temple and all of that. It's very simple here, but it says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that just came upon him drove him into the wilderness. The wilderness, the wilderness is the wild place. <laughs> They understand this very well in Sierra Leone because there the wilderness is the place where the evil spirits dwell. 
pebbles dwell. You know, you might run into one of them there. Um, it was also the place where Israel, when they came out of Egypt, disobeyed God. And that generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. They did not pass the temptation in the wilderness. They fell. And Jesus is the new Israel, among other things. But it's very, this, this, these verses are very important here in Mark. Because now Jesus, who has been declared to be my beloved, God, my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and upon whom the Spirit has come, begins his ministry by defeating Satan. Now, his ministry is going to conclude, of course, with the res cross and the resurrection, the grand defeat of Satan. And at every point throughout as he heals and forgives sins and so forth, he's, he's overthrowing Satan. But it begins here with him personally going into the wilderness and overcoming, uh, overcoming that temptation. Before he starts his ministry, he has already met the enemy. And he's, he's rejected every temptation. How, how many of you saw the, 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 uh, the, the Passion of the Christ? It's been out for quite a while. You know, I, it opens, of course, with the scene in the garden. That scene blew me away. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it condenses everything. Um, the, the, the scene in the garden reminds us of the temptation in the wilderness because Satan appears to him. And it also reminds us of Genesis 3.15 because Satan then takes the form of a snake and Jesus stomps his head. And I looked at it and I thought, the part they brought Genesis 3.15, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and his, his, his prayer in the garden all together, and they all belong together. It's all the same theme. You know, the defeat of, 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 of Satan. And here at his beginning, Jesus goes forth in the power of the Spirit because he has met the enemy. He's going to be overthrowing him throughout. He's met the enemy, and he has defeated him. Now, that's the background information that we are given. Now we step away from that into the narrative of, of Jesus' life. Are you with me? And from here on, from um, 114, actually 14 through 16 are kind of transitional, but from, one four, from 114 to 312, this is Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. This is, you know, Jesus is presenting his claim. I've got here on your notes. Um, um, you know, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I had that checked in the prologue as the correct answer. But here the question is going to be raised. Here we have Jesus presenting his claim to the people in Galilee and to us. Um, of course, it begins here with his preaching, and that introduces really the whole book, too. Um, uh, proclaim the gospel of God. That's certainly the same as the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the kingdom of God coming. He calls people to do what John the Baptist told them to do, to repent, turn from their sin. The time is fulfilled. It's God's time now. All has been prepared throughout the Old Testament of the ages. It's God's time. His kingdom has come in Jesus. This is it. For the reader of the gospel, it's God's time for you. When you come face to face with Jesus here and meet him, it's the time for every one of us. And every time we come to the gospel, it's the time for every one of us to respond to him in obedience. The time is fulfilled. Here you are. Here it is. Now is the moment. Um, 
uh, the kingdom of God is at hand in Jesus. Repent and believe in the gospel. This, of course, to believe in the gospel. Believe in Jesus. Embrace him. Follow him. And as we go through the rest of the book, how that develops and what that means comes out as we walk with the other disciples following Jesus. Then, this section, each of these sections um, uh, from 16 to 20, we have the call of the disciples. The sections we'll talk about later on tonight begin with the choosing of the 12 and then the sending out of the 12. Tomorrow's section begins with Jesus questioning in 12, who do you say that I am? Each one of these sections then begins with uh, an event with the disciples. And here, this is the call of the first disciples because this public Galilean ministry is Jesus calling people to follow him. Here is the invitation. When we get to chapter 3.13, he focuses on we who have already begun to follow. And the narrative is the 12. But it's when you, when you cross that, if you keep going, you identify with those who have begun to follow. Here is the invitation to follow as Jesus calls these four fishermen. First, uh, uh, Peter and Andrew, and then James and John. And he comes to them and calls them, and they get up and go. Now that's from what we already know about Jesus. What is the response? The response is to be like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, to just get up and go and follow him. People talk about they must have known about Jesus before that, maybe. Probably. They knew something. They had some knowledge of him. But we're not given that in this book. The simple thing is, when Jesus spoke along the Sea of Galilee, here as he walked, they got up. They certainly didn't have any more knowledge than we do from the prologue. We have some from the prologue. They may have had some knowledge of Jesus. But here is where it begins then, friends. You, you, you've already confronted Jesus. Just get up and follow. Are you with me? Embrace him. Go after him. Reach out to him. Begin to step out. This is, this is, these, these two chapters are the invitation to do that. And you know what we learn about that simply here is first of all, well the first two left their nets the second, James and John, it says they left their nets and their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired hands, and they took off. Now, it doesn't, of course, mean that every one of us have to leave our jobs to follow Jesus. That obviously is not the point. But it does mean there is a leaving to follow him. Mm, you know, you be, it begins by whatever the old life is, you're following <coughs> Jesus, and we're going to see where this goes now. This is going in a different direction. Right now, in the rest of this first chapter, um, uh, till the end of chapter one, we have Jesus' popularity growing among the common people. With me, from here, from from here, verse six, uh, uh, sixteen, through verse uh, whatever it is, uh, forty-five, whatever the last verse of chapter one is. Forty-five. Yeah, you have. You have a growing popularity among the common people. Beginning at 2-1, we have a growing hostility of the rulers. The whole thing is being said here. Are you going to follow him, or are you going to be hostile to him? Are you going to accept him? And 
And But as we go through this, Jesus is revealing who he is. Now notice, um, immediately then Jesus is in the synagogue in verses 21. I'd love to read all of this, but uh, uh, verses 21 through 28. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath day in Capernaum, and he was teaching. And as you look at that, what two things happen? What two things are people <coughs> impressed with? I'll put it that way in this, in this paragraph. It's authority. Okay, his authority, first in teaching, and then in the evil spirit being cast. I'll have to tell you one time. I think I've got time for one story here. But uh, I was teaching Mark's Gospel one day, and I can't even remember the question I asked, but nobody answered. <laughs> and I said, come on, you all. You know the answer to that question. Did you know Mallory Carter, not Mallory Picker? She wouldn't mind me using her name. We laugh about this all the time. But someday she was very excited in class. Someday she was more sedate. Well, this was a sedate day. And she raised, she raised her hand. I said, Mallory, she said, the authority of Jesus. I said, yes. And went on from that, the authority of Jesus. Well, it's not until after she graduates, she tells me, you know, I really wasn't listening that day. I didn't know what question you'd ask. Two of my friends over here knew I was, they were looking daggers at me. But on the student grapevine, the answer to every question in Mark's gospel is the authority of Jesus. So I just, I just raised and said the authority of Jesus. Well, here we have it. Um, we are, they are, they are in this synagogue, they, they are, first of all, his teaching. He doesn't teach them like the scribes by quoting this, that, and the other. He teaches with direct authority, and then they're amazed that even this unclean spirit from Jesus to shut up, because he knows who he is, is subject to him. You see here, the question of who Jesus is is being raised in the synagogue. Um, at the end of the book, Jesus will be in the temple with this question. But this is, this is why I have the arrow bite on your notes. What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. People are beginning to wonder who this is. Who is he? Who do you say that I am? The question begins to take focus here at the beginning. And then Jesus, throughout this first chapter, he demonstrates who he is by exercising his authority. The very next section, of course, he goes in to Peter and John, uh, uh, Peter and Andrew's home, and the mother-in-law is sick. They tell him, and he goes and takes hold of her and raises her up. The fever leaves her, and she takes his boots on. And the word gets around. And so that made their mom. There are all sorts of sick people from, from the whole Capernaum area coming in, and people with evil spirits. He's healing them all. And, you know, and, but you have to understand, you know, there have been other supposed healers. Some maybe have been genuine. Some healed in Jesus' name and so forth. But there's never been anybody in the history of the world, nobody that's claimed such authority as Jesus has, all he has to do is speak a word. Who speaks a word and it happens? In the beginning, God created and God said, let there be and there was. So, you know, Jesus is demonstrating that divine authority by the magnitude of the miracles, the number of them, the quantity of them, and by the way, no mumbo jumbo. No, he can use symbols if he wants to. You know, there are several times when he does something. If he wants to, he can. But he doesn't have to. 
He can just speak. Boom. And it happens. Um, and so here he's beginning to demonstrate that, that divine uh, authority here. And everybody is happy. This is a great thing. And so we have another incident beginning then, in verses 35 to 39. The next morning, Jesus, nowhere to be found. He's gotten up and gone to pray. I guess Jesus was a morning person. Um, anyway, um, I'm glad all of us don't have to be Christ-like. We don't all have to be morning people. But anyway, um, that's not good. But, um, you know, what we have, he's popular. Peter, what? Where'd he go? Huh? Is he over there? Under the bed? Is he in that room? So they go out and find him and say, everybody's looking for you. What's, what's going on here? We got a good thing going in Capernaum. We, we, want, we want you to come back and be with us and keep taking care of things. We want to keep you right here. We're learning something about Jesus and his authority right here. What does he say? He says, no, I got to go preach in the other towns in Galilee because for that reason I have come. You see, we're learning, they're beginning to learn right there. You can't domesticate Jesus. You can't just take him and make him your own and keep him for your own convenience. He's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. He's not, you know, you know, he's he is not, I mean, he loves us and he answers our prayers. But he is not at my beck and call. I'm at his. And so they're having to learn that. That here is, as even these people in his popularity. Then we come to the end of the chapter. The end of the chapter, the Jesus cleansing the leper is the grand climax. And of course, in a sense, we're moving toward the issue of sin, which will come in the next chapter, because leprosy, leprosy was closely associated with sin in the ancient world. I mean, it doesn't mean if you're a leper, you were a sinner. But it, it could be used as an image of the pollution of, of, of sin. And Jesus meets this leper, and the leper says, Lord, you know, if you would, you can claim it, you can do it. And Jesus has compassion on him. He has divine compassion, he has human compassion on him. And he says, I will, and he's cleansed, and he says, don't tell anybody. Instead, you can testify to me this way. Go to the temple and offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded for being healed from leprosy. But the guy, he's so happy you didn't pay attention to that. He <laughs> tells everybody. And so Jesus can't even come into town. You know, people are coming out to him, but he's so, so well. So here we have his popularity. What have we begun to see? We've, been, we've seen his divine authority. We've seen the kingdom of God coming to overthrow evil in these healings and so forth. And casting out, you know, we tend to run over the evil spirit kind of thing in the Gospels. And kind of think, well, they were, they were epileptic or something like that. Some of them may have been, I don't know. But the Gospels make it central. You know, Jesus goes into the, the desert, the wilderness, and overcomes Satan. And the first thing in the synagogue, the first miracle, is he casts out an evil spirit. You know, fundamental to the kingdom of God is Jesus is overthrowing Satan's power. We used to sing a song in Sierra Leone and Wintown. Jesus overcame, Jesus overcame, Jesus overcame Satan's power. Hallelujah. Um, and that's central to what's going, what's going on here. That's crucially important. But now, so we, we've seen his, the authority of God in overthrowing evil with a word, healing, casting out evil spirits, that he's come to reach out, not just for the little corner there. Uh, that's where we are in the book chapter 2. 
Let's see. I'm figuring if someone's if Bill had two minutes, I mean if um, yeah, Bill had two minutes and he took 15. You have a lot of time in the world. No, it didn't be that bad. I knew something was coming. I'm not foolish. But here we have the great change point in, at the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, 2, 1 to 12 is the forgiving of the paralytic sin. I've said it that way deliberately. Um, and this is when popularity among the people changed to resistance from the authority. And it's because Jesus makes the source of his authority clear. You know, he, he's come back into town, from the town to this house. Um, people here, he's there. I can just imagine the word flying everywhere in the village. Everybody's going around, all the kids are running around saying, Jesus here, you know, everybody's. And so the house is mobbed because he's, he's so popular. He's there preaching the word to them, uh, the gospel. And these four people come bringing a paralytic. Now, a paralytic, you know, there, there aren't any Joni Erickson Tatas in the ancient world. You know, if you were a paraplegic, your life was short. You, there was no support for that. You didn't have a good prognosis at all. And so they're bringing this man. He's desperate. And they're desperate. And they, they're desperate for help because they know he's, he's very terminal. If they don't get in there, and they can't get through the door. So, you know how they had flat ropes in Bible. If they go up there and they um, uh, make a hole in the roof, I've often thought the owner of the house down there, when he saw the dirt falling, <laughs> he must have got a little concerned. <laughs> I would have invited him. But all of a sudden, boom, that man is right in front of Jesus. Now, what does he want? Really? Obviously. He wants to get up and walk. And Jesus looks at him and says, when Jesus looks at a person and says, son, it's Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. You know, Jesus, of course, he's not Jesus' literal son, but even at a human level, he's taking him, he's identifying with him, expressing love to him, drawing him to himself, son, your sins are forgiven. And we have the Pharisees sitting over here. They start murmuring and saying, what's he doing? To themselves, not out loud. Jesus, only God can forgive sins. That's blasphemy. And do you know what? They're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Their theology was right. Mm -hmm. Only God can forgive sin. For me to claim that I have authority to forgive your sin would not be, would be claiming God's authority. Um, uh, and so um, they're absolutely right. The only point is they didn't, that's, and that is specifically what Jesus is claiming. Now, his claim to deity becomes clear because he's doing what only God can do. And of course, and so, but I want you to see how he makes that claim clear. He didn't come and pop off, knock it down a couple of mountains and say, look, I'm God, I can do this, boom. He didn't come with some kind of physical, destructive shock at all. It's shock at all, but of a different kind. But he comes and says, you know, I'm over, I'm come with the kingdom of God. I'm, your sins are forgiven. I'm delivering you from that. I'm removing that from your life. I'm going to take that away from you and give you victory over it. That's, that's how he makes his claim clear. He could have done it those other things. 
But this is how he makes his claim clear. And then he says, oh, you don't think so? I'll, I'll, uh, so that you can know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Go ahead. Get up and walk. And the guy, you know, jumps up, walks, takes up his bed, walks out. They wouldn't get out of his way to let him in, but buddy, they, they got out of his way to let him out. Man. <laughs> <laughs> he got out holding up that bed and wanted to go out, man. They opened the doorway. They, they got out of his way and he went out. Now, how does that prove Jesus had power to forgive sin? Could anybody who could heal like that? Well, I've never seen anybody else who could heal like that. But the point is this. Here's the bind he puts the Pharisees in. Let's look at Jesus. He's never done anything evil. He's not making any money off of this. Everything he's taught is good. And he totally heals this man. And he claims to be able to forgive sin. He's put them in a bind. They either have to admit that his authority is from God or do what they do a few verses, a few couple chapters later and they say, no, he's kept casting out devils by bills and the princes. He leaves them no choice but to do one or the other. Later on, he will show how foolish the other choice is. So he's put it right before him. So here then, we have it. And then to add insult to injury, the next verse is 15 through 17. He goes to Levi's house. Well, he calls Levi. Now, notice again, we're back by the Sea of Galilee in verse 15. That's where he called those first disciples. It seems to be the calling place. Um, he back by the Sea of Galilee, and he passes. He sees Levi sitting at a tax booth. We're not even told he's a tax collector. Start with. He's sitting at the booth. We suspect it. And he says, follow me. And he does. And he gets up and leaves the tax booth and follows Jesus. Now this leaving to be a disciple goes a step further. As you all well know, tax collectors were notorious in Jesus' time. Levi probably worked for, for Herod Antipas, who was a Roman client. And they got their job by telling the ruler how much they would give him. And then they, however much they could collect over that was their own. And it was notoriously, notoriously corrupt. And Jews who did it here, Levi's a very Jewish name. The Jews who did that were considered scum. As a matter of fact, the Living Bible here, in one place, instead of translating the tax collectors and sinners, says that's scum. Um, and, um, and so here he called, and he, but he leaves that behind. He's called to leave. Now, leaving is not just the nets, the common things of life. But the evil of my past life, I get up and leave it behind. Can you imagine? Nobody ever, nobody, no self-respecting Jew ever gave Levi the time of day. And Jesus walks by and says, follow me. It's like, you know, and in my, in my imagination, before Levi even knows what he's done, he's up out of his chair and gone. You know, it's just like... Uh, and so then we have Jesus, he goes to Levi's house, and he tells us that it was full up with tax collectors, along with his and sinners. The two go together, it really means bad sinners. You put them together. They're, and, they're, and, and, and the Pharisees, they're, they're, they're peeking in from outside. They're not in there getting corrupted. They're peeking in from outside. They don't say anything to Jesus. They say to his disciples, what, what's he eating with that come for in there. Then of course Jesus gives, if there is a purpose statement in the gospel, Mark, it's Jesus' words in 
verse 17. It's not those, mm -hmm. it's not the well that need a doctor, it's those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now what's going on here, friends? The statement is not to be taken strictly in the most literal sense. Look at what's going on here. Who are the righteous in this, in this section? The Pharisees. Who are the sinners? The tax collectors and sinners. What Jesus is saying is, I did not come to call the so-called righteous. I did not come. I can't call those who think they're good enough on their own. I, what I came is to call the people who admit they are sinners and they need a Savior and will come to me. And so the point here for you and for me is, being a religious person all my life doesn't earn me any points for Jesus. Amen. Being a minister of the gospel in and of itself doesn't earn me points for Jesus. Teaching in a seminary for years, I have a PhD in biblical study or being a missionary, whatever you have. That's not it. Those things hopefully are done in obedience to him. Not maybe in the world. The consequences may not have been as bad in your life as for these tax collectors and sinners. But before God, you're a sinner like they are, and you need Jesus just as much as they do. Amen. And so here's here's the point: it's that that Jesus. That's what I've come to be to 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 to, to say. That it's an invitation at the same time for you to take that position. Now let's see what happens after. This really gets them irritated. All the rest of this chapter is Jesus claiming his divine authority in one way or another. Um, well, the question about fasting is a little different. Um, you know, some some um, some Jews come up and say, or some of some John's disciples come. Uh, uh, so um, they come up and say, um, the disciples, the Pharisees fast. Disciples, of the Pharisees fast. John's disciples fast. Why don't your disciples fasting, Jesus? And the, the answer is not a ploy. The answer is quite significant. Jesus says, you can't, you don't fast when the bridegroom is there. Mm. I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. The fulfillment has come. And I'm standing among my disciples to expect them to fast when I am here with them, present in this situation. You, 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 don't, you don't grasp the reality of the situation. There you say to the folks. God in the flesh is here with us. The time will come when they'll fast, but it isn't now because of who I am, because I am here. And he said, you've got to change your thinking so you don't put old cloth on new garments or it will shrink and tear it. You don't put new wine in old white skins or it expands and ruins the skins and it's spilled. You've got to adjust your thinking. The fulfillment is here. Christ is here. The Son of God is here. That's why they're not fasting. And then the next passage where they're going through the the green field on the Sabbath day and the disciples, what they do is you know, it's, it isn't, this is not corn, corn, this is wheat or barley, what have you they take some off the top, they go like that and they eat it it was perfectly legal to do that going through, you, you couldn't take sickle or anything and reap somebody else's grain but it was perfectly legal and acceptable if you were hungry to grab a handful only this is the Sabbath day and so they're accusing them of working on the Sabbath day the main point here is not about our keeping the Sabbath. There may be some implications for that. But the main point is Jesus, is the authority of Jesus again. He says, look, human beings weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for human beings. 
And then he goes on to say, but the Son of Man, that's himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Who is the Lord of the Sabbath? Who has the authority to say what the Sabbath was made for? Nobody but God himself. And so here again, all these controversies about the Sabbath, and here in John's Gospel and elsewhere, are Jesus claiming who he is. Then you sort of have this whole thing come to a climax in chapter 3, 1 to 6. Jesus is in the synagogue. Again, that's where we began way back in chapter 1. He's in the synagogue again. There's not a person with uh, uh, an evil spirit this time. It's somebody with a withered hand. And all of them, now they're ready for Jesus. Now they've been watching, you understand? It's not like that first time in, 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 in the synagogue. This is stuff has been going on. And so the officials, the Jewish officials, the Pharisees, what have you, are watching him to see if he'll work on the Sabbath day, if he'll heal on the Sabbath day. And in anger, Jesus looks around at him, and of course he says, which is, do you do good or evil on the Sabbath day? What's right, to do good or to do evil? And this is not a justification for us just doing whatever we want on the Sabbath day either. But they won't answer him. And so he's not going to do it in the corner. He calls the man up in front of everybody and says, watch out. Uh, because he has come to show mercy on the Sabbath day. He has come to do the, the work of God, the kingdom of God, and the Sabbath day is quite appropriate for him to, to do that, and he is the Lord of the Sabbath. But that brings this this to a uh, this contest with the officials to a, to a, a climax, and what happens next? Three, one to six. What do they do after they do that? <coughs> they go out and plot to kill. Who goes out to plot to kill? Can't guess. Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Herodians. Yeah. Now, the Herodians. They're secular as they can be. You know, I used to say this to students, but most of them don't know who the John Byrne Society was anymore. But I used to say, this is not bipartisan politics, Democrats and Republicans. This is the Communist Party and the John Byrne Society getting together on something. This is as far extreme as you can get. Normally, these people hated each other. The Pharisees didn't like Herod. The Herodians, whoever they were, were Herod's supporters. And Herod didn't care too much for the Pharisees. These were, these were natural enemies. But they're so angered at Jesus because of his claim to ultimate authority. You can see Jesus is claiming the, the authority of God. And they sense that this relativizes their authority. That if they accept it, their life is going to have to change. And so they go out to do the only thing they know to do because they don't want to change. That's get rid of it. So friends, this is... Jesus' public ministry in Galilee where he calls people to follow him. And here we have the options put straight and clearly before us. There are those who begin to follow his disciples. We have Jesus demonstrating who he is. Doing what only God can do. Not only in healing and so forth, but also now in showing mercy and forgiving sins. Come to deliver and offer that deliverance to us. And these leave us with the choice then. Do we follow or do we reject? There's not really any place in between. Every one of us takes our place either with those who follow or even though we might not like it, 
with those who reject him and ultimately, like the Pharisees and Herodians, want to get rid of him and remove him. Now, are you with me? Now, when we move into the next section, Jesus then, it begins with Jesus naming the 12. Jesus turns from the public to those to focus on, public show up once in a while, on those who followed him. And so we too, when we cross this barrier, we then identify with the disciples. We are those who follow Jesus. And we are going to see them struggling with who Jesus is. He's already shown us who he is here at one level. But how do you put your mind around him? You know, he's a human being. He's got two eyes and nose and a mouth, two hands and two feet. He sleeps, he eats, he breathes. You cut him, he bleeds. I at least like to think that not only did he stump his toe, but at least once or twice he forgot an appointment. Because <laughs> if, if he was late for something, because if that's not true, his humanity was so unlike mine, I don't know if he can help me any. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, here was, he's fully a human being, and yet he's doing things that only God can do. How do you get your mind around this? It, it is a mystery that you cannot fully penetrate, and it's what the church the church has struggled to express over the centuries in the Nicene Creed and so forth, to express this reality. It's being struggled with right here. And it's something that we you, you can never explain it. Uh, a friend of mine one, came to me, met me one year, and we were sitting there talking, and he said, well, how do you explain God becoming a human fetus? And Mary's woman, I looked at it. I mean, he's a believer. He wasn't attacking me. He just asked. I just looked at him and said, I do not explain it. I, mean, I worship Because this is something, be, by definition, our human minds cannot grasp it. By definition, if I could understand it, I would be God. Um, uh, but, but it is true, and it is the heart of our salvation. And when we grasp it, everything else falls in place. Uh, so it is, it, is, it is to grasp and to follow him and to acknowledge him as, as the God-man, as our Lord and Savior. That is, that is crucial. And we can speak rightly about it, though it is, it is the grand and glorious mystery of God becoming a human being for our salvation that we can never penetrate. We can only worship the one who does it. So we end this session with this presentation of who Jesus is. And the challenge, I know all of you have, are following him. So the challenge to follow him. But we take the, the next step now as we move in the gospel as Jesus turns to his followers and we'll see how he reveals himself in a much deeper way to them. With them, we will begin to walk more deeply with him and to learn more about him. And that's how the gospel does it. It carries us, it carries us through in, in that way. Um, Correct. Okay. Any 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 question or comment? I have one. Huh? Um, I've noticed it in church before, but in the thing where he describes himself, he says, uh, "Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, are?" You know, he refers to himself all the way through as the Son of Man. Why was that? trying to decide whether to answer your question or not. Wait till we come back. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, 
we tend to think of Son of God and Son of Man as opposite. Son of God means um, divine. Son of Man means human. And it's used that way in the music, you know, Wesley's hymn, Son of God and Son of Man, it kind of has that. But in, in, in the New Testament, the Gospels context, that's not really quite right. Son of Man does embrace his humanity, but it embraces his, incar his, in his incarnate as a human being. It's more comprehensive for all whom he is. But with the emphasis here, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. With the emphasis here that as the incarnate Son of God right here in the concrete of this earth, I have the authority right now in this situation to forgive your sin. And of course it has a background in Daniel where the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is a heavenly being. Um, a representative of the people of God, but yet also almost God himself. And so it has a deep rootage there, but it's a very comprehensive term, and it's Jesus' term of choice for himself. Messiah, yes, he claims to be the Messiah, but so many people around thought of Messiah as a military conqueror that it was misleading. But Son of Man, he could, he could build on that Old Testament imagery, um, and yet it didn't immediately bring the idea of he was going to fight the Romans. Um, so it encompasses who he is, the, the divine Son of God, the representative, because Jesus in himself represents, he, he takes on the people of God. He is the new Israel. He has become a human being uh, and to assume that place to live in a, the obedient human life that the people of God in the Old Testament did not live. Um, and so it really is quite encompassing for all of all he is, but it, it is, it is, it, but here it's the emphasis on some man on earth. It's the emphasis right now in the concrete. Right now, the reality. I'm not talking about something ethereal. I'm not talking about some theory somewhere. I'm not talking about what God's going to do someday. Right now, in the concrete, right now, I am the incarnate Son of God, and I have the authority to forgive your sins, and I'm forgiven. Um, well, you well have studied the Gospels a lot. <laughs> it just strikes me in, in the things that you've said tonight that there is this issue of personal that is, is provoked by that term, the Son of Man. Yeah. Uh, and the, the things that when Jesus is confronting us with his identity, and you brought this out again and again, we have to change. It's not these people over here need to change. It's we have to change. Um, did you, can I, shall I just sing that song? Shall we just yeah. I, I want to. Oh, yes. I found something interesting that you said earlier about when Jesus was baptized by John, and that you said that you know the sky opened up, and, and it's like an affirmation that Jesus is God. It's one of the few areas that it, it's actually definitive that that's a you know acknowledgement, and that you said that um, the fabric opened up between heaven and earth, and. God said, in my son, I am very pleased. And, and at least Jesus saw that. That's, oh, that's, oh, it's been a question of mine for a long time as to how, who saw that? I mean, it's, it, well, did the masses see that? It's, it's a question for you for a long time because it's a question for most of us. Um, Mark says Jesus saw the heaven open. 
some of the other Gospels lead you to believe that more people than Jesus saw it. We're not quite sure how many saw it. You know, um, John would lead you to believe the Gospel of John. Clearly, John the Baptist claims that he saw the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus. So certainly John the Baptist was aware of it. What all other people saw, we do not fully know. Um, but we see it because it's recorded for us in the Gospels. So it has gotten to us and somehow either Jesus told this to his disciples or somebody else saw it. And John the Baptist evidently, evidently, clearly, clearly saw it. So we see Well, it. not just even in sight to the hearing of yeah. the Lord saying but, that. And you, in, in one sense, I mean, you can speculate on Jesus' consciousness before he began his ministry all day long, and probably very unfruitfully. Um, but this, I mean, this confirms to him who he is, yes. and God introducing him into his ministry. But it's also what whoever, whoever could see it initially, everybody who reads the gospel sees it. And so to the gospel reader, it is an announcement and a confirmation of who this person is. This is not just Moses. This is not David. This is not Isaiah. This is not just some great person from the past, spiritual person from the past. Isaiah had his great vision of God lifted up. But from the very get-go, this marks Jesus in, in a public way, at least to the readers of the gospel. This marks Jesus is absolutely unique. Um, different. The Son of God, the dispenser of the Holy, the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, um, Thank you. Suggested we sing I have decided to follow Jesus. Do you want to come up? I mean, I, that's a, that, is, that is such a universal song. They sing it all over the world. I myself can sing it in two other languages besides English, but they sing it all over the world. So, go ahead.
right now and we're doing time. If we would, we're going to break for dinner. You just okay. uh, go to your room and just wash your hands. We're going to meet out. As soon as everybody's ready, step there in the parking lot and Bill will guide us. Yeah, let's keep ready for dinner now. But I'm going to go on over there and okay. over there at 5.30 and then we'll make sure we're over there at 5.30. Everybody do that. We'll go yep. pray now and then just wash your hands now we're going to go over and wash your hands over there but we just need to get on the dinner we need to be together so bill can pay for it so uh brother michael hudson would you ask a blessing for us gracious heavenly father what a joy it has been to be here mm. and i pray dear lord that as we continue yes that we would focus more and more on our lord and our savior jesus christ he would truly be the center of our lives and the center of our ministries. And I pray, dear Lord, that as we go and as we take time to eat together, fellowship together, that you'll bless the food to our bodies. And Father, that you'll bless us to one another. And we'll just have a tremendous time being together. Father, thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' precious, holy, and wonderful name, do we pray. Amen. 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 Your Bible looks to be safe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Turn him back now. Adam told me you were playing. I thought, yeah, let's go for it. I don't know. You're going to have one tonight. Okay. Everybody, everybody well in that family of yours? You got a lot of people who keep well, man. They're, they're doing well. They've, uh, Daisy's now a few months old. Three, three and a half, three, yeah, yeah, a little over three months old. And she's starting to laugh about things. And, you know, she's, uh, this is the first time we've ever had kids and a baby girl in the house. Because Imogene's the oldest and she's the only other girl. And I'm telling you, they... They all treat her special. They she's really gonna, do. She's going to get so much. I started saying she's going to be spoiled, Rob, but you know what? Love never spoiled anybody. No. Indulgence might, but love doesn't. Love never spoils right. anybody. You are right. Oh, my. You know, I'm, when you have that many these winters, these winter days when kids are all getting sick, Yeah. it's hard to... It's a it's a it's a major accomplishment for you if everybody's well. It is, and you know, our we've always been very uh, very fortunate to not have our kids hardly ever get sick. They really hardly ever get sick, and it's not that they don't hang out with other kids. It's the majority of their time is spent, you know, together and, and whatnot. And we're not 
We're not germaphobes. You know, we, we, we don't even make them wash hands before dinner unless they're getting gross. You know, we've got... And I think that's been key. There's a lady in our church, she's a black lady, mm -hmm. and she, I mean, she's a wonderful Christian lady. She is a prayer warrior. She's one of the mainstays in our Sunday evening prayer ministry. And, you know, she's got two older children. The youngest one is, is eight is eight, <coughs> 10 -ish. And, um, but that girl is sick all the time. Mm -hmm. But her mama is germaphobe. She oh, yeah. disinfects everything. Yeah. And then it's like, no, the kid doesn't have a chance to build any resistance. No. You're, um, if you're, unless you go to the gym and hurt those muscles, you're not going to get stronger. Yeah. And the immune system is the same way. You've got okay. to expose the stuff yeah. or you're not going to be able to fight anything. Well, there's, there's that, you don't want to really get sick, but yeah. you're not going to get enough. Yep. <laughs>